0: Adam Jacob, thanks for for coming on the show. Um, I hear uh, I hear you had to go play some Dungeons and Dragons yesterday.
1: I super did, yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's the number I, of all the things that I've been doing while not working at Chef. The number one source of my time is that I have been creating my own Dungeons and Dragons campaign, and it now, has been so incredibly fulfilling.
0: Uh, now, are, are, you, are you like playing this through, or you're still in the design phase?
1: Oh no! Like I, we've been playing. I, we've been playing. Uh, so my, my strategy was that I was going to get as many players as I could, and we were going to play every two weeks, uh, yeah. it, you know, on like a Thursday for a couple of hours, because everybody's an adult and they've all got kids. And so right. like, you can't, you know, you can't have like an eight hour, like, come over on a Saturday and whatever, drink <laughs> not, and do. like, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so it worked way better than I thought it would. Like, I wound up with like 12 people who like want to play in this campaign which feels which was just fucking amazing and so I wound up with all these people and then uh yeah so I am you know I have the I don't know if you've ever created your own campaign before yeah yeah. but like you know you create the plot and then the players build the story right so you don't really have to do a lot of like you have to do a lot of storytelling you have to do a lot of plot where like you know the world sort of moves behind them while they're doing whatever they're doing so like whatever bad things happening in the world like that's just going to happen Uh, kind of no matter what shenanigans the players get up to um and the uh so I'm I'm very far ahead like I've got plot that goes for ever but you know I like I build the encounters I mean like usually two or three steps ahead of wherever they are enough that I won't run out when we're like at the table yeah Um, until
0: they're like you know the ten of them are sitting there, and then one of them's like, and then we kill the f- the, the inn owner, and <laughs> you're like, wait, yeah. wait, that wasn't in the plot.
1: <laughs> yeah, li- like last night, they were like, <laughs> there was literally a person drawing them a map to where they need to go in the game, and they were like, mm, I don't know, I maybe we should just maybe we should go like three hundred miles the other way. <laughs> and so I was like, I got an idea. We form <laughs> a farming cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, what are you? kidding me right now like I literally drew you a map and you guys are like "Mm, I don't know (laughs) that clue seems false (laughs) what the fuck are we doing anyway I love playing Dungeons and Dragons and it's been so fun and you know I the last time I built a campaign myself from scratch I was probably 17 um and uh, and I mean I've played a lot since then but I it's always been like going back to run like the classic modules that I loved mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. so like it's running like Ravenloft and that kind of yep. stuff which I've run Ravenloft probably 40 times wow I used, to run, <laughs> wow. I used wow. to run that game at a, when I worked at a game store um that's how I taught people to play Dungeons and Dragons is like I would run like a I would run a four hour ish like fast version of Ravenloft Mm-hmm. to teach people so so, so is that like
0: your first uh real job or
1: how yeah, far yeah. yeah 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 I, I, I worked in a comic book and role-playing game store when I was like uh, I think she I wasn't legal to work yet so <laughs> I was like 12 or 13 uh and uh yeah she gave me a job because I was always in the store and I would sell stuff when I was in the store so people would come in and they'd be like oh you like comic books They'd be like, yeah, I'm in like a comic book store. And I'd be like, no, oh, that's awesome. I love comic books too. What kind of comic books do you like? Oh, you like that comic book? And then, you know, you'd go from like, like them being like, oh, I like X-Men yeah, or like, I like Flash or whatever. And I'd like, they'd leave with a massive pile of comic books. And she was like, all right, kid, like here's how the register works. Like just finish that off. And
0: then- yeah, you, You're working only on commission
1: and, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like- this the beginning of a commission-based sales approach.
1: No, I mean I got a salary because <laughs> commissions are for suckers, right? <laughs> you got to pay me by an hour, man. I love it. There yeah. you go.
0: There you go. So, so how did you, uh, how did you transition into like software and, and sysadmin and, and all that?
1: Oh well, so the other thing I liked, I got, re- I have really bad allergies, um, uh, and I, through the miracle of modern science and medicine, like they're fine every day because I like medicate myself every day regardless of the conditions Uh, because I'm just allergic to the world, and so, like, (laughs) when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and, like, there's a lot of allergens in the Pacific Northwest, it turns out, and so, like, I mostly, uh, like, being inside felt a lot better. Uh, My mom had bought, she was a real estate agent, so she'd bought, like, a 286 with a, like, 1200-baud modem on it or something, and uh, I started calling bulletin boards, Uh, and then that was the coolest thing, like, Video games were dope, and, like, I had a super good time playing video games on that 286, but the thing that, like, just ignited my brain was that you could dial someone else's computer, and then Fidonet existed, and you could, like, send packet mail around the world. And I, at the time, it was, like, the, like, peaky Reagan-era Cold War, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that I could send packet mail to russia like i could have a conversation with actual people in the soviet union and i was like eight or nine and i was like and i was like this is my fucking jam right here like this and you're like i am am matthew broderick And, and they have no idea that i'm eight do you know what I mean? Like I could yeah, talk to yeah. all these people, and I could like I like I would get into these long conversations about like history or about all kinds of random just stuff, and yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And so I ran bulletin boards and started making my own bulletin boards, and then uh, and then I got on the internet really early, but I was already had a bulletin board that had multiple um, line, like I had multiple telephone lines running into my room, yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah. I was using my comic book money to. <laughs> bulletin board and uh yeah so then i built a little i like a little home isp like my friends could call my bulletin board and they could reboot it into linux and then they could dial out on the other line using slip and uh and get themselves out into the internet course, <laughs> and so i was a i was an isp for my friends when i was wow. in high, when i was in high school
0: yeah and so that it, that was somehow that turned into hkj uh uh, yeah. I mean, it,
1: it turns out that like what the world needed right at that minute was people who knew how modems worked. Cause that was the internet. Right. So like, that was the rise of the dial up internet. And like the only people who knew how that stuff worked were like me, <laughs> and other people my age, you know, like there's yeah, this cohort yeah, but, of, there's this cohort of people that are all roughly 40 now. Yep. And I, all of I, us, like yeah, I, we just, you know, we came up because there was no one else. There was literally not another person. So like, yeah. I was in college for like a hot minute because I was a terrible student, and I went to DeVry, and I got a job working for this ISP in Arizona, and I was making seventy-five grand a year, and I was nineteen or whatever, and I went. I told my mom I was just going to stop going to school because that's dumb, and she was like, "No, don't do that. Like, go talk to the guidance counselor." So I went to talk to this like guidance counselor at DeVry (laughs) of all places. And the guidance counselor was like, "Oh, you should definitely quit. Like, <laughs> you're, you know, you're making as much as a degree graduate would. So stop being an yeah. idiot. See ya." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, and, "All right, great."
0: I I never got that advice, but I'm uh, out. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I did
0: uh, I did write the dial-up how-to for uh, my university for Linux. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's how it, it starts. You know, and it turned uh,
0: it turned into Red Hat documentation. So yeah, you know. that's exactly
1: exactly yes. right. Yeah. And yeah. like, it's just, it just, next thing you know, you're like learning Perl and running a billing system. And then exactly. next thing you know, you're like rolling out of the dial-up internet era and into running application companies because that's what every company became after the consolidation of dial-up ISPs and everybody started getting DSL and ISDN lines. And then next thing you know, you realize the people you work for are pieces of shit <laughs> and you should uh, not work for them anymore. And so you start a consulting company. And then yep. you write some software that's really good. And then 13 years later, you're on a podcast with <laughs> and like,
0: uh, uh, Yeah, so that, yeah. that cuts out sort some of it. the middle, middle story. Um, I do
2: like it, but going back, I like it how you went out and uh, left college to make a lot more money to help people with dial-up. Matt paid to go to college and then <laughs> wrote the FAQ for the college while paying so, so yeah, and explains, someone else took like,
0: my, my write up and turned it into their product. In their
2: yeah. products, no. yeah. I was like, maybe that explains where everybody is. That's open source in are.
1: That's open source in a nutshell right there.
2: Yep, yep. That,
1: <laughs> that hurts. That is exactly right. And and then the thing
0: is, because I had contributed to Red Hat, I got invited to their IPO. Yeah, me too.
1: I patched the yeah, installer. Yeah.
0: But but I was I was like 19 and I, I went to wherever you could buy the stock and, and they were like you're not an experienced investor right. and they kicked me out right and so no. I was like oh. I had like scraped together like five hundred dollars yeah
2: if you and I was committed like, to like what's the story if you committed some code to Red Hat before that I they let let you buy like friends and family kind of stuff that's right that's right yeah. oh, that's yeah. awesome.
1: Yeah, they. Um, it was awesome. They 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 definitely didn't have to do that, and they. Um, yeah, they went out of their way to um, to make sure that the people who built that software. Um, yeah. Got got a chance. I don't know. A lot of people had Matt's experience, so a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times that story ends with, "And I couldn't buy the stock." Yes, um, and
0: and my five hundred dollars would have become fourteen thousand.
1: That's end. right. The end. <laughs> the end.
0: Yeah. But so so. Uh so you, you did uh, the consulting and that that turned into uh Yeah a we software started thing?
1: Yeah <laughs> yes, we started uh, <laughs> we started a consulting company. It was called HJK. Uh and it was myself, Nathan Haney Smith, um sucks, Siri, Kritakara, who is no one knows okay. a good dude that I liked. Uh and yeah, you know, Nathan's we was one of my best friends and we loved working together um we built ISPs and mostly I was just tired of literally like the people I worked for. I'd had a few moments where I realized that, you know, I'd worked for that same set of humans for like a decade and my boss cared about me, you know, like my manager loved me or okay. whatever. And I certainly loved my peers, but the people that I actually had done all that work for and made rich, like they, they, I meant yeah. nothing to those people. Like I, there was no, they did nothing. Um, yeah. And it was this, beautiful day in seattle and i was walking home and i was like i'm i'm done like i'm not gonna do that anymore and i was like what did i like best and i was like i liked working with nathan and i was like well what can i do where i get to work with nathan again and i don't and nobody uh nobody can ever treat me badly that way ever again and i was like i know uh, we will go be consultants and i was like well what do i know how to do and i was like God, i'm really good at automating infrastructure. Like not that long before this company that I had worked for had gone public through some shenanigans. And uh, and it was right when Sarbanes-Oxley um, first became a law. And they had just forgotten to <laughs> let anyone know that we needed to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. And so the auditor showed up one day and they sent the auditor to the operations guys and were like, hey, tell this auditor that we're cool. And we were like, what? and so like uh so we didn't pass is the nutshell and so you had like 30 days to redress uh the things you failed on which was everything uh, and so I had gotten this company to pass Sarbanes Oxley in 30 days like we automated that whole company and we passed the Sarbanes Oxley audit one of the first ones um in 30 days and so I was riding kind of high on my horse you know I was like I'm pretty good at that and so we started this company to go out and um, automate infrastructure so we would take a fee from a startup um they would pay us a flat fee and we would go build it all for them and then we'd take a retainer um and the fastest we ever turned one around was 24 hours so wow. from signed a piece of paper to we fully automated their business from the uh, from source control deployment um monitoring trending identity management um uh what else do we do It was like 12 things um, yeah We did it all in Puppet and the problem we had with Puppet was that we very quickly had like 20 or 30 clients. And the idea was that we would have this shared code base where we would get this like lift um, from, from sharing between all these different customers. And that just was not a thing in that era of Puppet. Like that wasn't, it wasn't going to go down like that. And so it wasn't fun. And our business model did not work the way we hoped that it would, because it was too much effort um, to sort of keep everybody straight. So it was either go get jobs or try to write software to fix the problem. And my, um, my partners at the time, Barry Steinglass then had joined us by then the S oh, in wow. HJK solutions and, uh, and Nathan decided, yep. Uh, let's just, we'll just pay Adam for a couple of months to see if he can come up with a solution to our business problem, which is how are we going to manage all these customers? Uh, and what I came up with was chef. Um, and then we showed Chef to Jesse Robbins, who had turned us down to come be a consultant with us when we had met him. And <laughs> yeah. uh, but he was like, "Call me if you build a product." And so I had built this product, and he was like, "Oh, this is great. We should go raise a bunch of venture capital." And I was like, "That sounds good because these dudes are paying my bills." And like, like bootstrapping's bootstrapping's hard. Yeah. Boot hard. Right. And he was like, "Yeah, it is. We should go get millions of dollars and be a real company and like sell product." And I was like definitely like we should definitely do that and then we did mm-hmm.
2: um yeah well, hey go back to like that initial meeting with the auditor like when they when they say socks like did you actually even know what Sarbanes actually was like in the person um like, like do- <laughs> you know, literally, yeah like, auditor, i just imagine the auditor showing up with like the spreadsheet i like, <laughs> well, mean just like looking yeah. over the shoulder like oh okay yeah we could do I mean, that okay that was
1: that. that was kind of it yeah i mean we knew what it was I i knew what it was but um but only because like the media was talking about it. Do you right. know what I mean? Right, uh, right, Not because it was like a, a thing that anybody had come to talk to us about. And yeah, essentially they showed up with a spreadsheet. And if you've never gone through, I'm sure it's different now. I haven't had to do it in a long time, but back then um, the truth of that legislation is it's very short and there's nothing really prescriptive about it. Um, but, but instead what it is is that the auditor you choose gets to define the parameters mm-hmm. by yeah. which you're safe or unsafe. And so, uh, you know, the auditor showed up and had this list and, uh, and I remember asking the auditor, okay, so what is, what do I have to do to be compliant with this thing? And he, his response was, I don't, I don't know. Like you, your
0: job
1: (laughs) job is to tell me, and then my job is to decide if it's sufficient. And I was like, okay, so I can, I can just make up an answer that I think is good. And then I can show you the answer and you'll say it's good or bad. He was like, yep. And I was like, great. (laughs) Uh, Did did it give you like warmer, colder or (laughs) (laughs) not really, you know, but, but it turned out that like we were good at our jobs or whatever. And we too didn't want to like run a fiscally irresponsible business that would crash the economy or whatever. So like, it was fine. Um, It was a lot of work, but it wasn't, it was, you know, got through but it i think
2: that's actually a good story because like i think people like that's where all the policies that people talk about today like that that those kinds of meetings right is what yeah really drove that because because really nobody knew right i think it just says like in the legislation it just says something real short like demonstrate compliance or like you know and then yeah. it's, like, it's up to the lawyer and the auditor to define that and then the it person to say what it is and then uh so it is kind of funny like how in the end right it is just kind of people working oh. to come
1: no one remembers and, that there's a negotiation.
2: Yeah.
1: So like you go into an organization and you're like, hey, so why can't you do this? And I'm like, oh, compliance policy. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Because there was a guy who knew <laughs> nothing about this, who negotiated with another person. And they came up with the thing that you say now is an immutable law of the universe. And I am right. telling you, it's not. Like you could, you don't have, it doesn't have to be like that. You, it's just that it's been, you know, if you're the company that I'm talking about, it was, I went through that. <sighs> It was a long time ago. And when I talk to some of those people, you know, every now and again, someone shows up that works there and they're like, oh my God, I like found your name in some source code or I like blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, some of the stuff that we put in to solve that problem, it's still there. Like it's still running and it's the original lines of code we wrote that's keeping them compliant. And like, that's terrifying. But also part of that's because everybody's like, well, I mean, why is that the way it is? You're like, well, because compliance. Yeah. Right. And like, well, yeah, but like, nah, man, we were just, we were just
2: people at the end of this with like people that just made, (laughs) we were just jerks writing Pearl, man. (laughs) Like
0: (laughs) jerks writing
2: Pearl. So as you sat out to like, when you were kind of writing your own solution, then like, I mean, it sounds like reusability, was that in your mind? Like, okay. When you're like, they're like, I'm going to pay you and you sit down and you start cranking out code. Like what, what were you thinking? Like, what were like, what were like the two or three things you're like, this thing's got to do X, Y, and Z for chef. Yeah. Well, even like, I guess like kind of pre-dating, it's like, that's the moment. Like, what were you like, I need chef to do this.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, my list were, I needed it to be predictable. So I needed it to fail the same way every time if it was going to fail. And the, um, that's a big deal. Um, And at the time that just wasn't a thing that Puppet did easily. Um, The argument was always, then you should just get better at Puppet like just write your dependencies better or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I'm pretty good at it. And like, it's still not it's so right. Hard. And yeah. and every time I use more of it, it gets worse. And like, it's a Puppet, it's a problem that Puppet has solved over time. So like Puppet has adopted some changes that actually funnily enough are very similar to changes that we proposed before I ever wrote Chef where I was like, hey, this would solve this big problem. And the response I got was roughly equivalent to uh, well, not roughly equivalent. I think the money quote was from Luke Knees saying, "That is the road to hell, I assure you." Um, and I was like, "Okay, you mean if it's the road to hell, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make you do it, man." Um, and And so the order was a big one for me because we had all these customers and um, it was the era of like Facebook apps, the first Facebook apps. Mm -hmm. So we had some customers that were in pretty hyper growth phases. They were using, you know, first adopters of EC2. They were in some of the first hyper growth companies and they really like, if you were launching a hundred servers an hour and 95 of them worked, but the other five didn't. And the reason was you missed a dependency in a graph as a consultant, that was not a good look. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and, yeah. as, and it was funny because as a, um, you know, if you were the sysadmin for that company and you had just done it, you would just eat it. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like yep. you wouldn't, you, it would be, you'd be a hero, yep. but I wasn't, I was a consultant and you paid me money and it was supposed to work every single time. And if it didn't, you called me and you were like, dude. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. was the, that was one. The other was I needed it to be a real programming language because I needed to integrate with my customer's systems deeper than I could do without it. And so a lot of that work was really hard. And then the last was I needed a searchable inventory that was automatic. So I needed a way to know what the resources were. Um, and I needed that, that inventory to appear without any human intervention.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: And then how long did it take you? You pretty much heads down like how many, it sounds like a matter of months. Yeah, probably
1: a couple months to get the, like, you know, you had working prototypes and, a week or whatever you know right. um but yeah months to get to a place where i could show it off to people that i knew okay. yeah and
2: then you know when you went in to raise money like did you like that's always interesting to hear how that went like what was like were you the one pitching it were you doing a demo or other people doing it how'd that work
1: yeah so it was jesse and i um jesse was the the ceo um and so jesse certainly was the like majority of pitching i was color and technology um and and yeah, it was it was a lot of rejection, you know. I think we got rejected maybe ten or twelve times. Um, and we got this very consistent advice that we should be less ambitious um, and like raise less money. And this was like right as the housing market had crashed the first time, and like there was a bunch of it. Just there wasn't wasn't a good time for investing, two thousand nine or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, so we then we went to coffee with Bill Bryant who at the time was working with DFJ, still is working with DFJ. Um, and we were giving him our like watered down after 12 times rejection, like <laughs> think smaller pitch, you know? Sure, sure. And we, we were like 15 minutes into it. And he like holds court in this coffee shop in Capitol in um, Queen Anne in Seattle. It's like around the corner from his house and it's like his special office. And so we're like pitching him in public in this coffee shop. And we're like 10 minutes in and he's like, guys, I gotta tell you, like, This is fucking boring. Um, And uh, is there like a billion dollar company in here that you actually believe in? Because this thing is just, I'm not, nah. And we were like, oh, totally. And so we just like rolled back to all the enthusiasm we had at the first pitch. And we were like, it works like this and it's going to take over the whole internet. And I had like a 40 page business plan with like little Lego guys in it. And like basically called the next ish, I don't know, we'll call it, eight years of chef development was all written in that business plan. And we did most of it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And he was like that, that I want to invest in. Let's do that. And then we did. So we raised two and a half million dollars. Um, and yeah, the rest is, you know, history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I joined right after, right when the B round landed. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a, a long journey. Um, what, about, what about like the, did the original business plan talk about working in the enterprise,
1: like being on, on-prem or was it all, you know, yeah. SaaS internet? It was all SaaS. So um, our original business model was the, that it would be, that this was also at the rise of SaaS. So SaaS right. companies were new um, and that was the thing. And so we were going to run, uh, yeah, we were going to, it was going to be a complete SaaS business. Um, and then the open source part would be if you were dumb enough to want to run it yourself, then you could, <laughs> um, but why would you? Cause SAS is the future. And, uh, it turned out, and also the long tail was sort of our plan. So we figured that we would get this big tail of, uh, of open source users mm-hmm. and, uh, and SaaS users too, but like smaller organizations and those sorts of things. And then eventually the enterprise would catch on and that that certainly happened, but the enterprise caught on much faster than we thought they would and they wanted nothing to do with a hosted configuration management system. Like while they were willing to run like their, you know, sales process or whatever through SaaS. Digital front end, yeah. They were not ready at all uh, for their configuration <laughs> management system to be uh, SaaS. Like uh, not at all. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that was a real struggle because that, that internal decision, you know, you set up your community, you set up the software, you set up your social contracts, mm-hmm. you set up the business itself, you have your own projections of what you're building and why it's important. And then the market sort of tells you that you're wrong yeah. um, and that <laughs> that you have to change. Um, and that's hard because that was the that was the beginning of the first of many rounds of trying to get the business right and trying to get the community right. And, you know, we never... Um, no decision that was ever made in any of those directions for the community or for the business ever were satisfying to everyone. Right. Like, right. there was always someone who was like, You guys are screwing me. Like like, you know, at first it was when the SaaS stuff was multi tenant and then the open source one wasn't. And so the community was like, Oh, you guys are screwing us out of multi tenancy and we're like, Well, <laughs> And then, you know, but then we open source multi-tenancy and then your sales reps are like, I got nothing in my bag. Multi-tenancy was the only thing I could sell and I'll never find another way to extract a dime and we're all going to die, you stupid idiots. And just like on and on and on in a circle. So it was sort of this constant circle of trying to fix, trying to get the business model right, trying to get the community right, trying to get that mix correct. Um, There was a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how how
2: did that go down? Because I think, you know, I've always... in. Inside a company, this this always feels like these are like the most contentious meetings. Like you got like the salespeople there, got some product people there, you got the community, you've got investors, like everybody's got this anecdotal story of like what you should do. Like, you know, you should just mm-hmm. do the thing and you should change it. And then of course you have, you know your own vision and some confidence because you've been somewhat successful so you're trying to like rely on that like mm-hmm. like how did that play out for you guys was it just kind of like the, the long series of meetings or was it like a deliberative process <laughs> like how did you navigate that? <laughs>
1: um i mean it changes over time right so if we're if we're talking if we're talking about like the early days of chef when you're like you know the early days of chef felt like a motorcycle gang I think Matt can probably attest to this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it felt like you joined a mo- and like you and like you were bonded together, you know? Um, and to our detriment, ultimately, you know? Like, the I love everyone that I have worked with and I certainly love all my co-founders, but like, it's hard to build a business and it's hard to build a community and it's hard to make those difficult decisions. It's even harder when you spackle on a layer of like really intense um, emotional requirements, which everybody has anyway. Do you know what I mean? But like when you're tight, like a family like that, like that makes it harder. Not that you don't want to be tight with people you do, but like, you know, those boundaries are so blurry and that, you know, people are complicated. And so it was just, it was messy and it was really hard. Um, and you know, mistakes were made, um, and you know, all around, um, certainly I made my fair share, um, and, but we're all still friends and we all still like each other. And like, I take all of that as a as a for real win. But ultimately, um, you know, of the people that you listed, it's, um, you know, venture, like your investors are very clear, mine anyway, um, about what they're there for. You know, like they gave you millions of dollars in order for you to create a business that creates more millions of dollars that they put in Um, and yes there's like they have projections about returns and yes there's a model but ultimately all they care about is is the business a good business yes or no (laughs) and it being a good business like yes you would like it to be a gigantic business that's worth a billion dollars and makes everybody rich that would be great for everybody Um, but if it's not going to be that it still has to be a good business what it can't be is a garbage business that is worth nothing um, right. that's unacceptable. Um, and the Delta between successful business and garbage business is actually pretty close. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> you know, the knife edge between this is going to work and oops, doesn't work at all is like, yeah. you know, like it's easy to mess up. And so I think the, the, the places where those conversations and those decisions are the most heated are internal. It's between the people who have to make the decisions themselves. It's not your investors putting pressure on you being like, oh, you gotta do whatever. What your investors should be saying if they're good investors is, the business isn't a good business yet. Like there's a fundamental problem in the way that your business is coming together. And if you tell me that the answer is hold the line on running a hosted business and never ever waver, then okay, but that decision means you got to make it work. And if you don't make it work, then either we close the business because there's not a viable business or somebody who's not you needs to start making new choices because either way, what's definitely going to happen here is we're going to do our very best to create a viable business. Um, And then inside the company, you know, if you're the executives who have to make those decisions or you're the employees who have to carry it out, like there's a, there's this emotional journey that's happening because so everybody's working so hard and you're doing your very best and you're have relationships with each other and so you just talk and talk and talk and talk and rub it over and worry about it and get gray <laughs> in your beard and you know and then eventually you make decisions and then hopefully uh you don't change your mind immediately because that restarts the cycle of talking and talking and talking and talking, and talking, <laughs> and talking yeah and gray yeah. and you know I don't know if that's helpful but that's what it's like and it's what it's like today like it's no different from that announcement then and from those decisions about our business model to to you know the conversations that are happening now with the chef community and uh and the way that their business model works and like yeah just is what it is
0: yeah i mean there's definitely no like handbook that you can just hand someone because everything is is changing in relation to like the world you know when chef started is very different from the world today yeah, and yeah. The way open source works, you know, 10 years ago is different from the way open source works today. Yeah. Just,
1: what yeah. I wish someone had, what I wish someone had told me and it, maybe they did tell me and I just couldn't understand it. So like that's possible too. Um the difference between being an employee or an owner and being an executive is really dramatic. So like I owned HJK do you know what I mean? Like it was mine yeah, yeah. Uh, and I owned it with Nathan and with Barry and with others, but like it was mine. Um, and I certainly have had significant ownership. And at one point you could have said I own chef, but like, I don't own chef and I haven't owned it in a long time. And my job for a long time has been to be a good executive. and um, it's not now, now my job is to run a D and D campaign. Um, but, um, <laughs> But for a long time, and what I'm most proud of was my own ability to become a good executive. And part of becoming a good executive is learning that you that you have power, that you have authority. Um, and what you do with that authority is create the space that allows other people to thrive. And part of that creation of space is using your authority to make choices. <laughs> like you have to make choices that set up the boundaries that allow other people to do their work. And... And what you wanted it to be like when you were a motorcycle gang was, was that we were in it together, that, that we could talk through those things as people, and then we would together make a choice. And that's just not real if one of you has power and the other one doesn't. Yeah, like, if one of you ultimately has the power to say, it's my way, because it's why? Because I'm the CEO. Okay, then we all know the whole time. That whatever conversation we're having, if you decide it's not your way, that it's not going my way. So were we peers, yes or no? And my emotional need to relate to people and to be liked and to love, be loved and to have people care about me led me to take a very long time to come to a place where I understood that that was not an act of love. That when I put that emotional need on people, what I was doing was asking them to make it okay for me to disappoint them. And like, that's a deeply unfair thing to do, right? Like the truth is my job was like, I have to love myself enough to own those things so that I can give those people the space that they need to be effective with their, what they can do. And by my not claiming that space, I was not being a better collaborator. I wasn't being a better executive. I wasn't being more empathetic.
2: Um,
1: I was just being scared.
2: But I think, you know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I think what embedded in that is the other side of it is, I think of like the employees, the salespeople, the investors, then, you know, as you're making these plans, there's sort of this internal thing that you want to give to someone. It's like, you, you know, this is the new path. You, you may not have signed up for this path, you know, and then giving people like, maybe it's, this is when people maybe want to leave or not. So like yeah. if I'm an enterprise salesperson and I joined to sell this kind of product and this is my skill set, and then you change it, I think sometimes like yeah. going the full way and being more honest and saying like this, this, this is really changing or, or the other side is like I'm a developer and I, I wanted to work on SaaS and I want to, I can't SaaS. now. And yeah, and just kind of giving them the permission to say, we have changed. Like we've changed what we initially thought. Doesn't, you know, doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but you may want to, you know, it may be time to move on. I think that's where like, there's like a lot of friction and sometimes people like don't have that conversation as openly, which leads to, I think what, you know, a lot of the talk and talk and talk.
1: uh, Yeah. And when your executives can't say clearly to you, this is what's happening. You can't react. If instead they say, well, it's not quite the way you think it is, or, well, I hope you feel differently about it, or, well, like, mm, none of that's better. It's worse. Because, and and what's what sucks as an executive, for the record, and I couldn't say, I mean, this is very refreshing for me, but, like, (laughs) you know, what sucks as an executive is that people will tell you that that's precisely what they want you to do. They'll look you in the eye, and they will say, boy, I sure wish you would consult with me about how these things are going to go. And the answer is, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because if, if I consulted with you about all of those things, you have the exact same amount of power you had before I consulted with you. About it. <laughs> and, yeah. and now so, your head's... But, but now you have a new thing, which is the full list of possible ways you might could get fucked. Yeah, um, right. and, and I still have to make the same decision I had to make an hour before, only now, and I feel better, because I've shared it with my friend, you know, I've shared it with this person who I care about and who and whose opinion I care deeply for. But like, oof, man, you don't want that. Like, that is not true. Um, <laughs> you want it. You you want clarity, and yeah. you want transparency. So you want to know why you made why someone made the choice they made. You want to know those things. But if you don't have any influence, if you don't have any way to change the the outcomes man, just like showing everybody all of the internal grossness that was required to get, that's not better. No, <laughs> it's it's no. so much worse. Yeah. And I wish someone had told me that or had told me clearly that I was fucking it up <laughs> um, before yeah. I had those personal revelations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I uh, briefly had a, a management position at, at chef and hired a, a bunch of guys to like transition them from traditional developers just admin to into business development and yeah, yeah, that was yeah. one of the things I was always warning them I was like you're, you can't go back once you start seeing how the sausage is made like you know the, yeah. the world is so different and the one-way mirror <laughs> it's like and, and now
1: like none of them have gone back to what they were doing before
0: because they can't
1: because <laughs> it's, a, it's a one-way mirror once you've seen it you're like oh no I got you yeah
0: yeah <laughs> yeah 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 well, so, so there there have been, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, changes of, of positioning. Um, I, you, you know, uh you took some time off to go write Habitat. So, yep. so you know, what, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you started and, and kind of like what you, where, where you started with and announced it to the world. How does that look like
1: today? Yeah, I mean, I started writing Habitat because Barry Christ said to me, like, Hey, this container thing, we should have a strategy. And I was like, I agree. Um, and so I went on a vacation and he was like, just think about it while you're gone. And then I was thinking about it while I was gone. And I'd been playing around with all the stuff in that space. And what I realized was that I I felt like everybody was, was solving the wrong end of the problem. I still believe everybody's solving the wrong end of the problem. I think the problem is that we don't understand how applications relate to each other and we don't understand how to manage their life cycle in a way that makes the cognitive burden of building a new service deploying it over time managing it through its life cycle easier um and so i started thinking about habitat and that's what sort of that's how habitat happened um if you want to be romantic about it it happened because i was smoking a cigar and drinking tequila uh and looking at the ocean um (laughs) in mexico uh Um, on the like second to last day of my vacation or whatever. Um, And so I came back and I started building prototypes and showing it to people and it turned out it was dope. And, you know, one of my guiding principles there was that Docker's user experience was so good that initial user experience was so good that you would crawl over broken glass for that to be your experience all the time. And, uh, but it just was not. Like once you get past that initial hit of good times, it was not good times. And so I... Uh, so that's how I started building it. I think we initially and uh, had a belief that um, that it should grow in a massive way, that like people should would see that it was better, and that it solves this fundamental problem by by thinking about it in the way that is actually the way that we should think about it going forward. And it turned out that that wasn't quite what people wanted to think about. Like, you know, they were happy kicking it in kubernetes land and sort of doing the things that they were doing um and so it didn't get the kind of grounds up adoption that like chef got for example right um what it did do though is it's really incredible software <laughs> like it's like black magic good software especially if what you're doing is taking existing software and trying to manage it as if it was brand new you know built to be well-managed software Mm -hmm. and so it became a very natural pivot to go look at chef's existing enterprise customers and say hey you know all of the worst applications that you run what if i made them run better than all of the cloud foundry stuff you're building and they were like you can't do that and you were like hold my beer Um, (laughs) and and then it works and so that's sort of that's sort of what happened with chef uh, with habitat but yeah we definitely you know it's it 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 became a thing that now has a very defined target market as a business. You know, that if we could do that for more people, that what's going to happen is they're going to pay us a bunch of money and it's going to be great. Um, you know, it didn't become the, the like industry shaking thing that I believed it and still believe it should be like, I'm, that's the software I'm most proud of writing in my life. It's, it's amazing. Um, but you know, markets is going to market. Yeah.
0: I mean, that, that, Relates pretty well because i i go into uh some of the customers i work with and, and they're like you know oh we've got this you know one team doing kubernetes we we like to see habitat and i'm like looking around i'm like how about that payments app over there that's here? yeah exactly oh, <laughs> web logic you? from yeah. 2011 and yeah i want the yucky
1: one give yeah, me the one exactly. that's like 20 years away from getting to yeah. kubernetes and hold and like watch me kill you like you yeah, are gonna yeah, go nuts yeah yeah
0: yeah so uh so you, you chose to use Rust um, mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for Habitat. At the yeah. time, At the time, Rust was fairly fairly esoteric. I mean, it's, it's yeah, moving up there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, any
1: still the right choice? I mean, yeah, absolutely obviously- the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons people choose programming languages, right? Yeah. So for sure, one is that I think Go is a pile of hot garbage. So like, every day I spend <laughs> writing Go, Is a day that I regret my life decisions. So, like, it's just not the language for me.
0: Okay.
1: Like, God bless and keep everyone who loves it. I'm so proud and glad that you have found a thing that is for you. But I would rather gnaw off my own fingers Um,
0: (laughs) because there's a lot of go at chef.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was a good CTO. (laughs) There you (laughs) go. So, like, I'm proud that I am a good CTO. Also, that language, like, it's nothing. (laughs) I like nothing about it, really. Um, and uh, and I don't I like I don't like the I don't like the origin story of it. Like I don't like the I, I I really really dislike the idea that someone tells me that there's a like a way to do it that's correct. And when I say, but I'm not sure that that's right, and they go, shut up, youngin, like you don't know. Uh, like mm-mm. as soon as that happens, I'm like, oh, we're not friends, and I have to leave now. And so like it's sort of foundational to the language. <laughs> um, so that was certainly part of it. Is that like wow. I wrote some prototypes in Go, and I was like, "Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Like this is not the language for me." And Rust, on the other hand, has this very welcoming, very egalitarian, um, very broad, just broad-based community um, that I thought was beautiful um, and that engaged in with me in a way that was really lovely and helpful. Um, and and then the language itself, what we were building was this very low-level process supervisor that if it was going to do its job, was going to have to interact with the kernel in really Cisco. direct okay. ways. And so uh, the fact that Rust has no runtime and uh, has the operability that just works by writing the language as opposed to having to do some shenanigans um, and the memory model was, um, was so clear and you can't have a supervisor on every device in the world that takes up a lot of space. And so you need to write it in a language that will allow you um, to think about things like memory allocation and object size and uh, how they're packed together. And as soon as you start using a a garbage collector, like all that stuff's out the window. And so, um, so that, that's why we wrote it in Rust and I have no regrets. It was, there were pieces there that were hard. Like it's, it's not an, it's a complicated language with a lot of space, Um, but you know, I think it's great. Um, and I loved writing it and I will write more rust in my life.
0: <laughs> so, so when, when you go to tackle a new language, how do you, I mean, what's your approach? Do you have like a, a pet project you re-implement or, you know, you just read everything and then go or what?
1: Yeah. Um, I always build something. Um, yeah. um, so I like, I'll follow the tutorial or whatever to get the syntax out and then I'll go, um, and then I'll go build something. Usually, um, it's something that I need. So like, um, I wanted to learn Lisp. And so I learned Clojure by writing Omnibus, wow. which is the build system for Chef that packages all the software together. It's no longer written in Clojure. By yeah, it. I was
0: about to say, it's, it's Ruby. in Ruby now.
1: <laughs> yeah, all kinds of things. But I, but like that started because I wanted to explore that idea. Uh, yeah. And because I was exploring an idea and I had no pressure, then I could explore that idea with whatever language I wanted to. And so I'd pick a new one. Um, um, you know, the same thing was like, I was building the command line for what was one of Chef's products called delivery. And I was experimenting, you know, we didn't need a command line yet. We were just playing around. And so I played around with a bunch of different languages um, and Mm. liked Rust. So um, yeah, I always find a, I'll find something and then I'll go write something for real. And then, you know, part of the process for me in doing that is interacting with other people who write code in those languages. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. a, the, the community. You get a feel for the community. And yeah, yeah. Yeah that's a big marker for me. Like I loved, I came up in the Pearl community, which I still love. And um, it just, it matters to me as much as any language feature.
0: Yeah. So are you working on, I mean, I, I see on, on Twitter, you're, you're dabbling with stuff around like the WebAssembly and you, do you have another project you're working on or just kicking things for fun? Oh,
1: I don't have anything yet. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I will. And I think WebAssembly is really cool. I, You know i remain deeply dissatisfied with um with the way the enterprise has worked and like all of working at chef over the last whatever 13 years like convinces me that we're just we're approaching the enterprises problem from the wrong point of view and that like the enterprise itself deserves and needs to be able to be agile with technology and be able to adopt new technology, be able to manage technology as it comes and goes. Like they need to be able to run that cycle in a much faster way. And Mm -hmm. we just aren't, we aren't building software for them like that. We're building software that comes from somebody else and says to them, Hey, you guys are idiots. And if you were less of idiots, you would run this software so that you could have nice things. Um, And so I will build something else uh, in that space because I'm obsessed with how bad uh, the returns have actually been on improving their lot. Yeah. And there's, you know, they have a bunch of money, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think that takes so,
2: us, I was gonna say, that takes us to like kind of maybe the, the more recent news of the week, right? Like kind of yep. you uh, you know, some of the stuff Chef announced. So I, I don't know, I feel like everybody knows by now, but, you know, Chef has officially announced like you guys are going full open source, right? Mm-hmm. Going, uh, going the opposite way than many of, uh, I don't know, various other infrastructure. Uh, and I think your, your blog post, uh, was it here? Goodbye to open core. I don't know. Yes. Look like at obscenity in that. Or maybe I just put
1: that. There down. was no obscenity. I said good. Rid- <laughs> I said good riddance to bad rubbish.
2: Yes. That's what it was. I thought. So it was um, a little
1: click baby. It
2: so it's a good article and obviously we'll link it in the show notes, but sure. um, you know, you've clearly given this a lot of thought, right? That So much thought the, uh, sure. you know, that it is, you know, if you will, it's, uh, Making it all free ultimately makes, makes it all more valuable. So like, I don't know, what, like, what's your thought process? How did you kind of come to this um, at a yeah. time or is it sort of like always been with you?
1: Yeah. Um, well, no, it wasn't always with me. Um, I, so the process of, I, so I left Chef under very good terms. Like, I love everybody. I hope everybody loves me like you're on the board I'm still on the board (laughs) I did my very best to uh because I love that company and I love the software and I love its community and I'm a a part of all those things and and you can't separate me from it because I don't I don't want to be separated from it um but I but I was done um doing that work you know like I just I couldn't it wasn't giving me what I needed and uh someone asked me um, very directly they were like, "Hey, if you start another company, will it be an open source company?" and I was like, Fuck, no um, and, it, and i didn't i didn 't think about it for two seconds. Do you know what I mean? like their sentence ended, my response began it was instantaneous yeah. and uh, and I was like, Ugh, is that true like why would i like why would I like I love open source yeah. and i love the chef community that's the thing i'm most proud of the the thing i care about most is that there's this set of people who found each other through this software and made each other's lives better and cared about each other as real human beings solving very difficult problems in their lives why would i say that i would that i don't want that again and it's it sent me on this like like very deep uh, like intellectual journey because I wanted to understand like, what do I really think? How do I really feel? And what did I really learn um, through this process? And I wound up writing this long thing um, that- I wrote a book? A little, a little <laughs> it's a little, I think, I think my wife calls it a monocle is what I think, or a monograph, it's a monograph. It's not long enough to be a book, um, but, uh, but it's too long to be an essay. Um, and it's like 30 pages long and it's about open source and it's about um, sort of why what I think about communities and why I think about them. And what I came out with was that I love open source and I love open source communities. What I love is when those communities are true communities. I love when they are based on a shared sense of ideals and understanding and people come together to to steward a resource together um, to solve their problems in the world. And, and I analyzed a lot of models about ways you could try to do that, uh, when you bring capital in, because a big problem is, you know, we want to say we have this community resource. What happens when somebody shows up with a bag full of money and Mm -hmm. what exactly is it they buy for their money, you know? Um, and, and for me, the, so that's where some of that started. You know, at the same time inside of Chef, I don't think I'm telling things out of school. Like, we were having conversations about what the right. We were, you know, there were new executives joining. Corey Scobie um, uh, is one. Brian Goldfarb is another. Um, and you, and those are moments where you get fresh eyes. There's people who are new to look at the business, and they're new to look at what you're doing. And you know, when you look at the model that we were following, which was open core, we built proprietary software on top of it there's this really rich tension between what's proprietary and what's not. And when you look at our investments in the software that we build, it was increasingly to the proprietary part of what we do, right? So we were investing, not that we weren't investing in Chef or InSpec or Habitat, we were, but, um, but you could see that the investments, you know, are, we were needing to build more and more proprietary software in, in order to continue. And, and you sort of look at it and you're like well but what's the value like why what is it you know because you get stuck in this cycle where people say well you know if you had this feature we'd buy it or if you had this or if this thing was proprietary i'd buy it or you know and i'm only buying it because this is proprietary that's <laughs> right and it turns out that i don't think um at the same time all these other companies mongo was one confluence another uh, redis we're making these very protective moves against AWS and I had just finished doing all this research and thinking about the nature of community and you might notice their business has not been impacted at all by this thing so they're all afraid that they're going to get destroyed by competition that if people could get their products or use their products or compete with them that suddenly they would no longer have a business and yet um their businesses are bigger than they've ever been. They're, you know, Elastic's a $5 billion public company, right? Much bigger than Chef, um, uh, MongoDB, same thing. Um, and they've only gotten bigger. Why? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that, that it, because if it was about the software being available somewhere else for less money or for more convenience, they'd be dead by now, right? Because uh, the Elastic Search service at Amazon has been there for, <laughs> for 2015, you know, yeah. um, certainly since before they were public. Right. And so the answer is that what people care about is the product itself. They care that the product that they receive is a full real product. It's not just the software, it's, it's the human beings who put their energy into it. It's the build systems, it's the security, it's the testing, it's the assurances, it's the support. It's all of that, it's the knowledge of how to solve a problem with it. It's all of that that is the product that people buy and it's why they wanna have the relationship they have. And saying on the one hand that it's that the best outcomes in the world, Chef has this in spades. We tell people that the thing to do is collaborate with each other via code, right? And that it transforms the enterprise if you do that. At the same time as we say, but you can't collaborate with me on the most important parts of the software that you pay me money for. That's proprietary. Right. Um and so You know the way you get there is you look at that and you go is that really true like is that really where our value is is that really why people care and i don't i don't think it is i think they care because they love the product because they love the problems that it solves because we're the best in the world at making a product out of that software and that what we should do is admit that the right thing to do is collaborate with everyone with our customers with users with anybody who needs that software however they need it um and, in return, the only thing that you have to hold because you still have to have a way to make money is that the only people who produce the product we produce is us, so the only people who make chef chef right um, you can make you, you can take it and do whatever you want with it, but you 'll never be chef you right. could be uh, and, and that doesn't mean you couldn't be equivalently as good as chef you could right um, and that model to me feels much more in line with the values that we started the company under in the first place and much more in line with the values of open source and much more in line with the behavior we've been telling the enterprise they should adopt. Um, and so I think it just aligned, the stars aligned in every possible way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think there, there's been kind of a collective fear among open source companies of like, well, Red Hat did it, but nobody else could possibly do it,
1: right? Yeah, people love <laughs> yeah. I, when I researched that, like everybody has a reason why Red Hat was Red Hat. But ultimately, um, most of the time what they're saying is that the market conditions were so unique that it allowed Red Hat to exist. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and one of the things you realize when you start digging into all this stuff is that people are very bad with definitions. (laughs) So like the, um, Red Hat's market conditions are not their business model. Right. Um, and Red Hat's business model is very straightforward. Like They create enterprise products that they sell to the enterprise with incredible branding, with world-class support, and a huge amount of investment in quality and trust, and they sell it for money. Mm -hmm. The only way to get it is to pay them money. Um, It's super duper straightforward. All the software happens to be open source. Uh, And the only thing they do differently is they always create a brand, and that brand only comes from them. So like Kubernetes is Kubernetes, but OpenShift is OpenShift. And mm-hmm. like like an OpenShift, like there's an open community distribution of OpenShift, but does anybody know its name? And if you did know its name, how would you describe it? You would say, it's the free version of OpenShift, <laughs> right? Right, right, um, right. And like that's their business model. Yeah. Um, and you can, all the rest of it is all real, um, but ultimately it's that simple. And if you write it down that way and you compare it to open core, open core would say, well, the first part of what we do, that's free. And we all want to collaborate on that thing. But as soon as you get to this part that we think is valuable to our customers, that part's not free and the values of collaboration, those don't exist. Those were dirty, dirty lies. We don't actually value collaboration in those places and those places we value monetization and we will shift according to what the market needs us to do. And so we'll build this weird curvy line that is like all of those things, uh, and, and like no one would invent that on paper. Right? Because it's bananas. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of the model we all tripped into. Right.
2: Well, I think there's a couple of interesting things there. Like, one is I think there's some, you know, kind of uh, comparison to be made to just like whether it's like social software or just network effects in general, right? Like, mm-hmm. in consumer software, it's very well understood that, like, you know, the software to actually do like a Facebook product isn't necessarily that complicated by today's standards, right? Like, it can mm-hmm. be replicated, but the reason Facebook is successful is because it has all these people. It has a community, and you can make mm-hmm. the same argument for like, Twitter and and, yeah. like and I think those things, uh, those ideas, while they're like easily understood and accepted in the consumer software world, they aren't really. You know, usually in an enterprise setting, it's usually often an investor or sometimes a sales guy or just anyone saying, well, why is someone going to buy? Right. Versus yeah. no one ever says like, why is someone going to use Facebook? I'm <laughs> my private Facebook. They're like, that's it's right. Obvious to them. So I think there's that, but I do think, you know, I, and I think you, I really like we talked about conditions versus business model and I'd really like to hear your thoughts on, I do think though to be successful and ultimately returning money to investors that's meaningful is there just has to be a big enough uh, need. Like I think you, and I think you referenced this in, I think you referenced this one. Your your blog post, your medium post, was talking about how you know you do want to have like you know ideally thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people using it, right? Because that's what creates the brand, and then some some group of them are going to then buy it. So like we are out to buy like a really specialized piece of software. This is going to go the other way. I always think about like when would I give advice a different way? it Would be like you're just building something for five people, and it's like really specialized, and it's like a, a tool that just they need. It's like sell yeah, it to them you're gonna yeah you and they're gonna buy it because they need it right and there isn't mm-hmm. gonna be a big community because just by definition and so if we go back in time it's like well linux is like i don't know maybe it's the most horizontal of all software it's like everybody yeah. know, everybody but you need it. it uh and then you kind of as you got to walk down the stack right mysql is kind of same thing everyone needs a database and then mm-hmm. now we're getting to the point where you guys are config management it's like you know everybody just needs this right so I think that's maybe the one thing I think about when you're kind of, when I look at all these different companies doing different things, it's just like, how big is that top of market? Right. And I think that's, that's, I think that's that's legit.
1: I think, I think that's real. I think, um, what I don't know for sure yet and is interesting is, um, I don't know what happens when you're starting from scratch. So like, you know, chef exists in the world has this has, it has an existing thing. So this transition makes sense. Um, I suspect that you could start out this way from the jump, that you could say that what you're doing is, is building this piece of open source thing in the commons as a resource for the commons to steward for perpetuity, um, and that you're going to monetize that software uh, by building enterprise class products on top of it from the day that you begin. Um, I think that's a big jump because uh, most of the feedback you get you know, the feedback hasn't been all positive to this transition. (laughs) And, and, and most of the negative feedback is, well, you used to, we used to produce this thing for you and it's complicated to produce. It's expensive to produce this, these resources to the, the distribution. And, and so they're like, well, now you're screwing me because I, whatever I contributed or I gave my time or I did whatever. And now I don't get this free distribution in return. Um, or, uh, it was free. And so I used it to build my billion dollar business. And now you're extorting me to which my response is, we were never a community in that case. Like (laughs) I was giving you free coffee. You never loved me. I don't, I don't, I'm not sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, if that's, if that's the situation you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. And so I wind up in this moment where, um, when you think about if it's possible from the scratch, from the jump, my belief is that. It's less even about market condition. Market conditions are things that they will or won't exist based on whether your product solves a real problem that, uh, that is that enough people have in a way Mm -hmm. that those, that enough people understand. And you can create those dynamics even if the market doesn't know it needs it. It takes longer, but it's there's plenty of examples of people creating a category because they brought a thing to market that they knew the market needed that the market didn't even know it wanted. I think, um, but I think, For the model, the question is, um, can you you build a community where the community knows that the people who are contributing that resource to the commons are doing so so that they can monetize the resource? My suspicion is yes, because you always knew Chef was going to monetize Chef. I took venture capital, I told you on the blog, the day I, pu- I, I published that software, every yep. single person knew my, that I was gonna make money on that software. That was true from the day we started. So I'm not sure what the dynamics, how the dynamics are any different. And if I had started the other way, if I had started the way Chef is now back then, what I would have done was avoided a decade of tension with my own community <laughs> with partners with all kinds of people and i wish that i had done it and you know some number of people will say that i'm an idiot and that uh, it won't work and that the conditions were different you know what i haven't made a decision in 12 years where somebody didn't think i was an idiot
2: uh, <laughs> and- but i do think you know you have some good advice there so i think if like the three of us were sitting in a room right and you said hey we're going to build this piece of software i think at the right at the beginning I think you could kind of say, I think it's a smaller market, it's a niche market. I think we have a, have a finite set of customers. I think in that room, I'd say, this we should use a traditional software licensing model. We should not open source this. That's or, right. or we would say, no, we think this is gonna be huge. We think it's gonna be big and we see, you know, a huge need, even if it isn't, you know, it's a category creation opportunity or something along those That's lines. Right. Right? And yeah. at that point we would say, and this is back to like, the, you know, kind of your meeting with investors, we'd have to have the conviction to tell people it don't, it's going to get big enough and there's going to, and the, back to your thing about the brand, the community, uh-huh. that's, what's going to ultimately drive the value of this company. That's why people are going to pay us. Yeah. And we're not going to do the open core thing. Right. Cause I think anytime you're in the room, that open core, it just feels like, you know, it, I, I think people do it because they feel like they they're leaving optionality, you know, available, but really they're closing their options. And, it, and it just doesn't, yeah. you just can't see it at the moment. Right. It's that's because the, you
1: don't trust fundamentally, and this is true for me as much as anybody else, it's because you fundamentally do not believe that people will pay for the value of producing the product itself. Yeah. Fundamentally I mean, you believe yeah. that they, that they're, that they only will pay for, for, for something that they cannot have. Um, and I think that that's untrue. Um, what's going to be interesting and hard for the chef community is that the chef community has to learn that there's things that together that, 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 now Chef is more of a community member than it was the day before this model transitioned, right? Before this model transitioned, if you wanted stuff in Chef, the only way to get it was to go straight to Chef. <laughs> there was no, like, yes, we were collaborative. Yes, all that stuff was true. But like, fundamentally, there was no second source. There was no other distribution. There was no other thing that would get you the same functionality before this. Right. And now there will be um, at some point. I don't know when, but it will happen. Um, and and the and that transition is one of the moments where the community will be orders of magnitude stronger than it was before, because all of a sudden, we're we are stewards of this thing, whereas before mm-hmm. chef was the steward of it and it had to be open to the community. Do you see the difference? Yeah. yeah. Like tomorrow, we're not open to the community. We are the community today. They are chef is the community finally, um, yeah. but you know if you go look at the slack channel right now there's a lot of people who are like i don't know about those motherfucking chef people like they might could be out to get us (laughs) and i'm like they're not saying it that way but essentially it's that kind of cynicism where it's like where's the secret svengali catch like where's the evil plot and i'm like there's no evil plot man because like it's the worst evil plot of all time (laughs) right if it's an evil plot we are awful villains right because you're like okay, what I'm going to do is take all of the value for all the stuff that we've poured hundreds of millions of dollars into, hundreds of people's lives into, do all this sturm and drang about community and all this stuff. We're going to make all of it free. The only thing we ask you to do is not use our name. And that's the evil plot. Like that's the part where the villain dies. Like that's (laughs) what happens to the villain after you've defeated them. (laughs) Like, and, uh, but, but it's going to take a minute for people to believe that that's true it's one thing to say it what has to happen is it has to actually transition into being a community resource it has to actually go through this process of of understanding itself and each other to a place where it's like oh actually it really is open it really is a thing that we can build distributions on it really is a different thing than it was before and yeah it's gonna take a minute
0: the 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 chef community slack has uh for for those who don't know has has a, a new channel called community fork and it's very active right now. And, and people are kind of like popping up and like, wait, why are all the chef people here helping us? Yeah, Why are
1: all these employees here telling us
0: how to do this?
1: Because, and look, like from my point of view, like the theory that I, pers- that I helped think through is that like, that that would happen. Yeah. And, and a lot of those people were contributing, but they were much more on the margins than they are today, right? And, and if they actually build a distribution, that becomes a thing that someone can go get, like that's a lot more human beings (laughs) invested in making sure that the Chef ecosystem and that that product is great than existed the day before. And um, and that's a win for the community. That's a win for the software. It's a win for its sustainability long-term. It's a win for every person who uses it. And I also believe it's gonna be a win for Chef's business because everybody who's using that business in a large commercial context, like that distribution will be produced by people and they will be good people but they won't be chef mm-hmm. and that's okay right um and they might become chef right maybe they'll start another company and maybe they'll you know what i mean like and yeah. i just that's you just have to let that be what it is because yeah. uh yeah, because otherwise mm-hmm. you're not a community right
0: yeah. have uh have you know without uh, revealing your sources has anyone from like other companies projects reached out and said like you know you got to tell me how this goes because we want to do it too
1: (laughs) a few have told me you got (laughs) to tell me how it goes nobody has told me that they want to do it too um (laughs) i mean it's definitely going to be a wait and see thing Um, oh yeah yeah i think if it works you'll see a bunch there's some situations i wouldn't do this in so like if i'm confluent where um the software lives in what i call a free software island so kafka is the Apache project Kafka, mm-hmm. so Confluent their only choice is to build proprietary software on top of Kafka, because they must differentiate themselves from Kafka. Yeah, uh, uh, and they don't have a choice. Uh, Chef, on the other hand, is Chef. Um, that upstream, we they put the bulk of the work into it. They the trademark is theirs, like it's Chef. Well, uh, and, and like Elastic, and the company they same thing. Do- yeah. elastic owns elastic and so elastic uh could do what what we're doing and they'd be very i think they'd be very successful in doing it. i think it would help their business i don't think it would hurt them i think they'd outcompete aws the the day they did it um like everything would be fine is my belief um <clears throat> i'm sure shay bannon would call me up and be like you're an idiot but that's fine um uh i'll like i'll i'll prove shay wrong um <clears throat> when i'm a five billion when it's a five billion dollar company um I don't know, God willing, but like, I think the, um, you know, I, I there's situations where I wouldn't use this model, but like most of the infrastructure companies all could use this model. HashiCorp could do it. <clears throat> Puppet could do it. Um, uh, anybody who owns the primary asset. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, I think, uh, I think, uh, we've, we've pretty much hit everything uh, we wanted to talk about. Um, So, uh, so final question: Um, Mm. What uh, doesn't have to be related to chef and open source? What is uh, something that
1: that you know that you wish more people knew about? Oh, what do I? Something (laughs) I know I wish more people knew about. Um, I wish more people understood that um, that founding a company. Is not the hard part of, of being an entrepreneur. Uh, the hard part of being an entrepreneur is turning into a good executive who builds a business that's worth having uh, and building a company that's worth working for. Um, and I think we tend to tell the story that, um, that that's not true, That that by dint of founding that you have some kind of magic pixie dust on you that says <laughs> that you know sort of what the right I've thing got, to do I've is, or... three
0: founded failed companies. <laughs> yeah,
1: and like, and the truth is that it's just hard to do, and um, and and we look for and create an environment where, um, where we don't talk enough about the fact that it's hard to be those people, um, and that that work is hard work, um. And, and when we see mistakes or we see things go wrong um, in the industry or in our lives, um, we tend to let people off the hook. And the story we tell is, is that the situation sort of pushed them in these directions, which is sometimes probably real. But ultimately, I think the thing I have learned, and I wish more people knew, is that, uh, is that you can expect that people would behave in a good way. Like you can say that I think it's the responsibility of the people who are in charge of this thing to make good decisions. And if they don't make good decisions, then what I'm going to do is judge them based on their choices, not based on, you know, my fear or, uh, or anything else, which is maybe a weird answer, but
0: I like it. Good answer. Very good. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on the show and yeah, uh, pleasure. giving us the, uh, the latest news about uh,
1: retired life and <laughs> <laughs> everybody's really struggling with how to figure out how I'm not working till June. It should yeah. be done. Like, am I on a sabbatical? Am I retired? Am yeah. I on vacation? Like, I don't know what the right word is. I don't feel yeah. retired, but maybe I'm retired, but I'm not like know. retired, retired. I'm definitely going to work again. Yeah.
0: You're, you're in, you're in my slack. So. <laughs> well,
1: well, that's because you know, I like, care about your community. <laughs> ah. Enjoy I'm the time off. That's community. all that really
2: matters. You know, I am. It's great. Thanks right, for now, me. Hey, Matt, before we go, we should tell everyone if this is the first time they've ever listened, they should go to com and subscribe, and they can hear not only this interview, but a whole bunch of other interviews. And they should also, of course, check out com to hear myself, Matt Ray, and Kote ramble on about the news of Enterprise Tech Weekly. So make sure to check those things out too, Matt.
0: Yep. Uh, okay, well, Adam, is there uh, if if people want to get a hold of you, um, what what is your preferred medium?
1: Oh, the easiest way is just Twitter. You can just find me. I'm Adam HJK on Twitter. That's the easy way. You can of course send me an email. I'm AdamAtsdaleCoffee.org. And uh, if you really, really want to talk to me, you can reach out to me in one of those things and ask me for my phone number, and then you can call me on the phone and you can use your face. Wow. Nobody likes phones. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. I <laughs> love phones, and no one calls me. <laughs> yeah so I've given my phone number out a lot and no one yeah. calls it it's
0: awesome. true all right yeah. well thank you uh, thanks again and yeah. uh, I will talk to you again soon
2: all right, all right. bye thanks
0: and stop